Well, good morning. I'm so glad to be coming to you today on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday. So many from our church family joining us online and, and so many others who have, been, who have been tuning in through our Facebook page and through our web page. I just want to welcome you. I'm so excited about today. You know, our church buildings may be closed, but let me tell you, the church is open. The people of God are still worshiping our King and our Lord Jesus, and Jesus is alive. He's, he's not inhibited by any kind of shelter in place. He's not sheltered in place. Jesus Christ is alive, his spirit is poured out, and he is still moving in power in the earth right now, this very moment. And I can just say this, that I've had so many conversations with people online in the last several weeks that are turning toward the Lord. This moment of difficulty has been a moment where people are considering their walk with the Lord and things are shifting in the spirit. And I believe this, there's people this morning, you're tuning in right now, and you are reorienting your life with the Lord, and I want to speak right to you. I want to speak to everybody that's tuning in, but if you're in that moment right now where you're saying, I need to, I need to turn toward the Lord, I need, to, I need to connect with God more, you've come to the right place, you're looking at the right message. So I want to pray one more time, and we're going to get in the Word today. I have a message called, The Glory of the Resurrection. The Glory of the Resurrection. I want you to pray with me at home right now. Just close your eyes right where you're at. Lord, we love you. Jesus, we are here for you. And Lord, we want to hear from heaven right now. Though there is a shelter in place in many, many nations, you're not sheltered in place. Your spirit is moving throughout the earth. And so I'm asking the Holy Spirit right now, move in power in every home, in every location that people are, are following this stream online. Move in power right now, Holy Spirit. I pray for a divine attentiveness. I pray for the conviction of the Holy Spirit, for the spirit of revelation to be released. Lord, we look to you. They that look to you, their faces are radiant. They're never put to shame. So Holy Spirit, I ask, illuminate the word of God. Breathe on us this morning. Cause our hearts to burn just like on that day that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and he walked on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples and their hearts burned within them. I'm asking for that fire on the heart even this morning as we speak the word of God. So come, Holy Spirit, help me to speak clearly, easily to be understood. Let me speak as an oracle, and I pray, stand here with me, hold my hand. We give you thanks in Jesus' name, and everybody at home said, amen, amen, and amen. Well, like I said, I want to talk about the resurrection today, the glory of the resurrection, but it's super important that before we talk about the resurrection, we have to talk about the cross, there is no resurrection without death. There is no life from the dead without the cross. And so we have to look at the cross of Jesus Christ to really consider the implications of the resurrection. And for years, I've, I've come back to this place of just staring at the cross. And, and I, I, I'll tell you this, when I look at the cross, when I think about the cross, when I think about what Jesus took upon his own body on the cross. I've been able to tell in my own soul when I've been 
tender towards the Lord versus when I've been a little bit dull, when it's been a little cliche. And when the cross hasn't moved me, I've always taken that as a sign that I need to present my heart back to the Lord, that I need to allow the Lord to really deal with me. And so this morning, just as I talk about the cross for a moment, I want you to consider the implications of it. I want you to get out of that place of thinking about, you know, I've already known this and I understand what that was. And, and I want you to move it completely out of the realm of cliche. And I want you to move it into this place where this reality that God became a man and he took upon himself your own sin and he died a sinner's death for you. Let that bear upon your soul. I've been reading through the gospels this week and looking at, you know, the process of Jesus' life. And, and when, you, when you look at it, you realize this, that from the very first time Jesus began to do miracles, that there was these rumblings from the Pharisees, from the Sadducees, that we need to stop this man. And they would have these little conversations on the side and they would try to figure out how can we stop him? Should we put him to death? What should we do? And then when you get to about John chapter 11, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, it's like that is the trip hammer. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, they decide in that moment, we're going to kill him. This teaching, this power, it has gone too big. We've got people being raised from the dead that everybody knows. Everyone's believing in this man. We have to kill him. In fact, it's pretty crazy in the, in the testimony of it because they not only want to kill Jesus, they want to kill Lazarus. Let's get rid of every shred of evidence that this man ever did anything powerful to declare that he was, he was a, a miracle worker, to declare that he was the son of God. And it's from that moment forward, you can read it through the book of John, that they are plotting to kill him. They are looking to take him. They want to arrest him. And it's there at the Passover that they decide that they're going to be able to find an opportune moment in the middle of the night. They've got Judas who's willing to sell him out. And I just want to say this as a side note. The fact that Jesus would be sold out through a betrayal from a friend. I believe this, that betrayal... It's the most severing, the greatest pain that humans can experience. And that's why Jesus was sold out through the betrayal of one of his, his dearest friends. Well, they took him. They came into the garden of Gethsemane where he'd been praying. He'd been sweating uh, as drops of blood. He'd taken the whole sin of, of the world upon him in the garden. He was interceding for humanity in that moment. He was taking the sin of you and me and of every single person who would ever live. It was being placed upon Jesus Christ there in the garden. And when they came to arrest him and Judas came near and kissed him on the cheek, from that moment forward, the Son of God underwent one of the most severe bludgeonings that any human has ever gone through. In fact, Isaiah prophesied about Jesus and said his appearance is marred more than any man. Jesus Christ, sinless lamb, perfect God in the flesh, never did he operate in disobedience to the Father's will only spoke the Father's word, and he was beaten and marred more than any man. Well, I want to take you through what they did to him. They began to, to beat him and mock him. They began to treat him as a, 
as a, as a madman, as a, as a common thief or some sort of villain, perfect God. They began to accuse him and they took him before the chief priests and they had false witnesses lying about our Jesus, making up stories about Jesus until finally the chief priests asked him, are you the son of the most high? He said, it is as you say. And the chief priest, he tears his clothes and he says, this is blasphemy. Can you imagine the hubris, the arrogance of a human being to stand before God and say, God, you're the liar. We are true. But I want to tell you something. It wasn't just the chief priests. It wasn't just the accusers. It wasn't just the crowd that cried crucify that said that over Jesus. It was all of us. We've all sinned. We've all gone our own way. We've all kissed Jesus on the cheek in betrayal. We've all turned against him with our lives. I think about my own story, my own testimony, and it just, it moves me because I hated God. I was against God. I was a drug addict. I I was an atheist. I didn't believe God was real. I remember going to a church that was under construction and in that church, raising my hand to God, shaking my fist and saying, if you're real, strike me, kill me. If you're real, prove it by sending a lightning bolt and killing me. He didn't do anything. And I remember saying, I knew it. You're not real. And I just feel like the father looked down at me and he just smiled. And he said, oh, you're gonna threaten me I'm going to have you. You're going to shake your fist at me. I'm going to stretch out my arms for you. And I just feel like my challenge to God was met with such an overwhelming, aggressive pursuit from the Father and from the Holy Spirit that within a matter of years, I knew my only hope in life was to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. Well, when they brought Jesus before the chief priests and and the chief priests declared blasphemy, from that moment forward, the floggings began. They took him before Pilate. Pilate said, I find no, I find no uh, sin in this man, no wrongdoing in this man. But, but to appease the priest and to appease the crowd, he said, have him, have him flogged. Now, the Roman scourge was that flogging. And the Romans had a rule. They said, uh, uh, they said a man can only withstand 39 floggings. And so they would take him. And I've been to the place where they took him. It's called the pavement. And they stretched him out. And they got a cat of nine tails, which is a whip with nine extensions, have a piece of, of stone or a piece of, you know, jagged material there in the end of each extension. And they took that whip and they began to rake it across his back. Psalm 129, the psalmist prophesied some thousand years in advance. He said, they've plowed my back. They've made the furrows long. And Isaiah 53, some 700 years before that happened to Jesus, It says, by his stripes, the stripes that he took on his back, we were healed. And they began to stripe his back with that whip over and over and over again. Some historians say that they would take that that cat of nine tails and they would soak it in some, some goat's blood so that infection would be there on the stripes of that whip. And as they would begin to, to bring that whip across the back of their victims, that it would be an instantaneous infection that would get into the, into the bloodstream of the individual. Well, Isaiah 52 prophesied this. He says, 
I've given my face to those who rip out the beard. Isaiah 50, actually. I've given my face to those who rip out the beard. Well, they began to tear the beard of Jesus out. They began to hit him. Prophesy, who's hitting you? Prophesy, Christ, if you know. And they began to beat him and bludgeon him mercilessly. And this beating lasted the better part of the evening until the next day when they, they took him and they sentenced him to death to be crucified. They put that cross beam across his back and they commanded him to carry his cross. And he, he fell out. He, he fainted under the weight of the cross because of the beating and the blood loss. They put the crown of thorns on his head. They beat it into his head. They mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. And now Jesus has fainted. And they grab Simon of Cyrene and he carries his cross all the way to, down the Via Della Rosa, all the way up to the place of the skull, Golgotha. And there they crucified him. When they pulled out his arms and they stretched him out. You know, in the movies it shows that the, the nails go through his hands. But the, the Jewish... Historians, the hand extended all the way through the wrist. See, the hand would never hold a body on a cross. What they had to do, the Romans had to take those spikes. They had to drive it through the wrist and they would lodge it between the two bones in the arm. That The body would literally be hanging on the two bones within the arm. They pierced Jesus in the wrists on either side. And they wrapped his feet in front, one and the other. And they put one single spike through the front of that first foot and out the heel of the back. And there he was. And they lifted up the cross. And they would lift that cross up and they would drop it down into the hole that was already prepared for it. And the psalmist said of, of, of Jesus, Psalm 22, he says, all my bones are out of joint. And the reason why it prophesied that about Jesus is because when they would fall into that seating of the cross, it would dislocate the, the, the shoulders. And the victim of a crucifixion, for them to be able to breathe, they would actually have to press up on the, the spike in the foot so that they could actually get a, a breath of air and they'd fall back down on it. And the way that their body was strained and the diaphragm was strained, the lungs were strained, they had to do this for hours to press up on the foot to breathe and then they would collapse. Press up on the foot to breathe and then they would collapse. And finally... After they mocked him at the cross. If you're the son of God, come down. After they mocked him, finally. And Jesus, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Finally, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the father turned his back on Jesus. All the sin of the world placed on Jesus Christ. Your sin, my sin, the sin of everybody that had ever lived, the sin of everybody that would ever live, all placed on Jesus Christ in that moment. And then he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he gave up the Holy Spirit, when he gave up the spirit, he, he died there. And the veil of the temple was torn and an earthquake hit that place. That, that's what we celebrate on Good Friday. Now I want to tell you something. One of the challenges with Western Christianity is we preach a lot of resurrection, but we don't preach a lot of crucifixion. We preach a lot of blessing and being raised from the dead without preaching a lot of cross. And Jesus was clear. He said to anyone that wants to follow me, he must take up his cross and follow me. He must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. 
And I tell you this, beloved, not because it's a bad story, but because it's the most beautiful story that Jesus Christ paved a way for us, that he showed us that by laying down our life, then we can truly live. And that's what he instructed his disciples to do, to lay down your life and then you'll find newness of life. So many people, they want to add Jesus to their life. And I will tell you, it doesn't work that way. You can't add Jesus to an already full life. You have to lay your life down and say, take my life. And that's what he was doing on the cross. He was giving us his life so that we would give him our lives. And I'm just so grateful That the story of Christianity isn't just the death of the cross. It's not just the death that Jesus underwent, the bludgeoning and the, the beating. It's not just that, that the story of Christianity is, if we will follow him, even as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, Romans 6 says, we too will walk in newness of life. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time on today. The resurrection. I want to be clear. You've got to go through a cross to step into resurrection. You've got to go through the death to step into new life. Don't try to sidestep death to get into new life. But if you will lay your life down, he will raise you up again. I want to take us through in the notes four clear points about the glory of the resurrection. First is this, the resurrection is the foundation of our faith. It's the cornerstone. If there is no resurrection, we have nothing to believe in. Everything that we believe hinges on the truth of the resurrection. But, and I want to be clear about this. Jesus Christ is no longer in the grave. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Paul was so clear about this point that without the resurrection, we don't have anything to believe. I mean, Jesus was a good man without the resurrection. He was a preacher of righteousness without the resurrection, but he could not claim to be the son of God. In Romans chapter one, verse four, Paul said that he was declared to be the son of God by power and by the resurrection of the dead. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, that if Christ has not been raised, he says, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But I want to declare to you today, I want you to feel this right where you're at, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He is alive. He is alive forevermore. When you woke up this morning, just like every other day you've ever woken up in your life, Jesus is alive. He's as alive right now as he was that very first moment that the Holy Spirit invaded that stone-hewn sepulchre. I mean, he is alive right now just as much as he was when his physical body was reanimated by the power and the glory of God. That place that was filled with darkness was lit up with light and Jesus came alive and he's alive right now, beloved. Come on. Shout in your house. I mean, it is real. It's what we believe and it's true. And this is our hope. This is what we stake our faith on. That Jesus is alive now and forevermore. Listen, 
You and I cannot afford to live with this being some kind of half-baked understanding in our heart and mind. This cannot be a cliche for us. We have to live in the living understanding that our king is alive, that he got up from the dead, he got up out of the grave, that he is alive right now. He walked and talked with them for 40 days. He taught the disciples after he was resurrected and then he ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father and he is coming again. Our Jesus is alive. This is what we stake our hope in. This is what we live for, the resurrection of the dead. It's what Paul was on trial for, he said. I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. The sect of the Sadducees, they believed there was no resurrection. But Paul, being a Pharisee, he believed in the power of resurrection. And so when Jesus appeared to him on that Damascus road, everything that he believed, all of a sudden it became real right in front of him. That one that died that I've been persecuting, he's alive right now. He's he's there speaking to me. Listen, beloved, listen, listen. Our hope is not just like anchored in temporal comforts and blessings. If all we live for is that we're going to be blessed in this life, that we're going to have an ease about our lives in this age, we will be sorely disappointed. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about the ultimate glorification of Jesus Christ across every nation, every knee and every tongue. Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. And our lives are a witness unto that. And whatever he wants to make of us, oh, so be it, whether we are abased or whether we abound. This life is not about trying to get all you can. And be as blessed temporally as you can. It's about living in light of a resurrected Christ. And he is to receive all the glory. And Paul made this point so clear. 1 Corinthians 15. He said this in verse 20. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruit of those who are asleep or those who have died. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Let me tell you something. You are not going to stay in the grave either. Jesus got out of the grave and guess what? So will you. Everyone that believes in Jesus will be raised from the dead. Jesus said it to Martha in John 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone that believes in me, though he perish, he will live. He will live forever. This is our blessed hope. At the appearing of Jesus, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them in the air. We will be changed. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm sorry I'm a little excited about this, but this is what we live for. This resurrection day, this is what our hope is in. Verse 51, he said this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. But we will all be changed in a moment, 
in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. We were singing it this morning. Beloved, I want you to get it so clear. I want this hope and this truth to compel your own heart that you are not going to stay in the grave. That your body is going to be raised. When Jesus returns, you will get a brand new body. And those that are alive when he comes, they will be changed. Paul said, we're going to get a glorified body. And we are going to be interacting with Jesus. Spirit, soul, and body. I love to say it this way. Every pore and fiber of your being is going to be filled with the glory of God. You are going to be so alive and animate with the power of the resurrection. This is our destiny. And we're going to engage with him. See, right now, if you and I look him in the face, well, our physical frame, it could never handle it. But in a minute, you're going to be kissed with glory. And when you're kissed with glory, the power of the resurrection, you're going to be able to stare right into the face of God. And the power of a billion suns is going to course over you. And then you'll really know what Psalm 16 meant when he said this, in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures evermore. Beloved, this is our destiny. Well, not only is it our destiny and the hinge of our of our faith, the resurrection is so clearly established in the Bible. I want you to think about this. The prophets talked about the resurrection of Messiah a thousand years before it ever happened. In fact, it was thousands of years if you, if you look at Genesis chapter 3. But David, he was so clear about it. Psalm 16, he said this. You will not leave my soul in Sheol or the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That's a thousand years before Jesus ever walked the earth. David was prophesying that Jesus would be raised from the dead. Well, Paul, he talked about it very, very clearly. And in 1 Corinthians 15, in the first part of it, he actually goes through multiple times when Jesus was seen resurrected. Now, now what's interesting is this, is that five times on, on that Sunday when Jesus was raised, five times he appeared to different people. And then there's a, another six times where it identifies that he, was, he appeared to the disciples. But there's one that's so unusual. It actually says that he appeared to 500 people at once. Look at this in 1 Corinthians 15. I think a lot of believers miss this one. 
says in verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom, as of the writing of 1 Corinthians, of whom the greater part remain to the present. Some have fallen asleep. In other words, some of those 500 people had already died. But when Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, the majority of those 500 people, they were still alive. What is that? Well, here's what happened. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he spoke to Mary and he said, tell my, tell my brethren to meet me in Galilee. And then the angels that attended Jesus at the, at the resurrected tomb, they said, he's going to go before the disciples into Galilee. And in Galilee, we have a couple occurrences. We see Jesus, he meets the disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He tells them to, to cast the, the net on the other side and they bring in a great catch of fish and he's there roasting fish, having a fish and chips breakfast on the beach. And, and that's where they realize this is the Lord and, and Peter jumps out of the boat and goes and swims to him. And they have this meeting there on the shore of Galilee, but there wasn't 500 people there. But there's another time that Paul is referencing None of the gospel writers talk about it in detail. We just have this idea, this reference that they were all going to Galilee to meet him. But Paul had done the work. He had done the research. He knew the ones that had been there. And I want you to get your mind around this. 500 people in Galilee, likely just outside of Capernaum, perhaps on the same mount where Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. 500 people gathered in one single moment, and Jesus Christ, in his resurrected state, stood in front of 500 people, and they physically saw him and heard him. He wasn't some sort of, you know, projection. He, he, he wasn't one of those 3D images. He was physically there. And this is why. The gospel ended up running the way it did in the New Testament because hundreds of people were witnesses to the resurrection all the way until the day when Jesus ascended and, and the disciples, they watched him go up in a glory cloud and angels attended them and said, why are you standing here gazing? This Jesus who went up in glory, he's going to come back in glory. And this is such a powerful truth that, that they saw him physically. Can you imagine what that was like? I mean, you go through the pain and the shock and the awe of the cross and the death of Jesus. And then over the next 40 days, you see Jesus multiple times. And there's even a gathering of 500 people that Jesus appears and speaks right into the midst. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Well, no wonder all the disciples laid down their lives for him. No wonder they had no problem saying, my life is not my own. No wonder they were all martyred. I, I love what Luke says in Acts chapter 1. After his suffering, he presented himself to them, the disciples. He gave many convincing proofs. Well, I guess so, if he's right there physically in front of them. He gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a, a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. 
This is shocking if you really just think about it. Don't let it be cliche right now. Think about this. Jesus Christ, for 40 days, a month and 10 days, is walking around, meeting with the disciples, giving them instructions about the kingdom. There were so many things that he taught them that it says they did not understand these things until he was raised from the dead. Well, when did they get the understanding? When he's teaching them in that 40-day period. What a fantastic idea. Now, what people will tell you, well, there's no, there's no proof. Well, what are you talking about? There's hundreds of eyewitnesses. There's these men that all laid their life down because they saw this man risen from the dead. The proof is so, I mean, it's so rich. It's so overwhelming. There's so much proof that this entire cohort of people would give themselves fully to the the lordship of Jesus Christ because the, the reason why is because they saw him raised from the dead. Beloved, this is our hope. This is our glory that our king is alive. Well, this resurrection, it's the hinge of our salvation. It's it's not just the cornerstone of Christianity. It's not just firmly established in the Bible. It's the hinge of our salvation. And what do I mean by that? Paul said it in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you believe that Jesus is Lord. Now, that's quoting an Old Testament prophecy by Isaiah. It literally means if you believe, not that Jesus is boss, but that Jesus is God. If you believe that Jesus is God and you believe that he got out of the grave, that he didn't stay dead, that he was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. If you believe that Jesus is God and that he was raised from the dead, submitting yourself to him as God, you shall be saved. This is the hinge of salvation. See, if you really believe he's raised from the dead, you live differently. You stake your faith in him. You stake your hope in him. You stake your life in him. It's not just a mental ascent. It's a heart faith that says, I believe, therefore I will live. It's a faith that has corresponding actions. When you really believe something, you live for him. I had somebody this week, they said, how do I give my life to Jesus? What do I do? And I told him, I said, What you have to do is give up. You just give up. You just submit yourself to him. You say, you gave me your life, I give you mine. And then you live for him. You live with him as Lord. See, it's it's his grace that he would die for us, that he would pay for our sin, that he would take our punishment upon himself. And it's his grace that he was raised from the dead. And it's his grace that he actually will take our lives. He'll cleanse us. He'll forgive us. He'll fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit. If you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, if you believe that Jesus is God, then what you say is, I believe and I give you my life. Have me. Have all of me. 
have all my hopes and dreams, all my desires, everything. Take me. You gave me all of you. I give you all of me. You see, beloved, there is an easy believism that's been preached in American and Western Christianity where we just say, well, if you just, just believe, you're in. And we give mental assent to a truth. But I will tell you something. Giving mental assent to a truth is not the heart believing unto righteousness, which is what it goes on to say in Romans 10. With the mouth, confession is made. And with the heart, a man believes. This is where the, the, the whole hinge of salvation, where it's all based on that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, finally, this, I'm getting ready to close. The resurrection, it points us to the truth that there is a glorious age to come. It points us to the reality that this life and this age is not the end. So many people, they think, well, when, when Jesus comes back, the world is going to end. No, 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 that's not what's going to happen. When Jesus comes back, he's going to rule and reign in righteousness. And when Jesus comes back, the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth as the water covers the sea. When Jesus comes back, a whole nother age will be inaugurated and you and I will live with Jesus ruling and reigning in righteousness in the age that he called the resurrection. He described the age. Resurrection isn't just people floating around on clouds wearing togas playing harps. The resurrection is very tactile and very real. It has massive implications. Heaven and earth are coming together. Ephesians 1.10 makes it really, really clear. Jesus Christ is returning. You and I who serve Jesus in this age, we get a glorified body. And I just want to tell you this, that this thing's going to go on for some time. There's not just the next age. There's ages to come. Christianity doesn't end with this age. It goes on and on and on. And Jesus Christ will rule and reign in a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will indwell. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says this, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus. We're waiting for him because he's coming. Who will, watch this, transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body. This is powerful. He's going to take our lowly body, and like what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, he said it again here in Philippians 3, he's going to take our lowly body, and he's going to make it just like his glorious body, just like his resurrected and glorified body. You remember when John saw Jesus on the Isle of Patmos, and his face was shining like the sun, and his eyes were burning like fire, and his head and hair were white as wool, white as snow, and his feet were glowing like, like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice sounded like the, the, the sound of many waters. He is going to make us like that. We're going to be filled with glory. But watch this. He says, he will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. How? According to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. I will tell you this. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are going to come under the lordship of Jesus. Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign all over the earth. He's going to institute his, his values and his kingdom across the globe. 
He's coming, beloved, to see the earth covered in glory. And he's coming. And all the nations will come and bow before him. So many passages in the scripture make it absolutely clear that Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David on the earth. And he's going to reign forever. Oh, beloved, this is our hope. When we think about Easter, oh, I'm so glad we're not trotting out an Easter bunny and some Easter eggs. That is the most ridiculous idea. That we would run a big tooth, scary bunny out in front of all the children and think that has anything to do with the resurrection of Jesus. But oh, on Easter, what, would, what do we look at? We look at Jesus getting out of the grave. We look at the promises he's given us that we're going to have a resurrected body. And we look at an age that's to come where Jesus Christ will rule and reign. And beloved, this is what our hope's in. This is what our faith is in. This is what our salvation is in. Now, I want to speak to you just for a moment as we're wrapping up. And I just want to speak to those of you that, you know, you may be right now, you're watching this on the internet somewhere, and, and you've been trying to sort of figure out how do I get my life kind of back closer to God. You've been reevaluating, and, and that's good because a lot of us need to be reevaluating right now. I know we in the church, we need to be reevaluating. We've been saying we're, we don't think we're supposed to go back to church as usual. Well, then we got to figure out what we're not going back to and then what God's inviting us to. But many of you, you're, you're right now reevaluating your life. You're thinking about your relationship with God and, and you're thinking, I need to get close to God. Well, I'm going to tell you something. There's no version of serving Jesus where you sort of just add a little Jesus on like you sprinkle salt on your food. There's no version of that in Christianity. There's only one version. He died for all that they which live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That's the only version there is. Now look, he doesn't take perfect people, and the reason why is there aren't any. So many people, they say, I, I'm just not good enough. That's the point. He didn't come for the, for the healthy. He came for the sick. And you and I, without Jesus, we are sin sick. We are doomed to eternal torment and death without Jesus payment for us on the cross we are lost forever but I will tell you if you'll come to Jesus you'll submit your life to him if you'll confess Jesus you're my Lord you're God I believe you've been raised from the dead you will be saved the mouth confession is made with the heart we believe unto salvation and righteousness that's how it works. And so you may be watching this right now and you're saying, I need to, get, I need to give my life to Jesus. Some of you, you've served him in the past and you've, you've kind of gone away from the Lord. You've become lukewarm. Maybe even during this time of quarantine, you've been backsliding. I'm calling you out of that right now. Maybe you're connecting to this and you've never prayed the prayer and submitted your life to Jesus. I wanna pray with you right now. And so I want to invite you there in your home, wherever you're watching this stream, I want to pray a prayer with you. I will pray the first part and I'll have you just repeat it with me. And I want to invite everybody who's watching on this resurrection day that we would declare 
our faith in Jesus. Some of you, you're coming back to the Lord. Some of you, you're making Jesus your Lord for the very first time. Some of you, you love Jesus as your Lord. I want to lead you in a prayer just to reaffirm that. So would you, everyone right now, out of your mouth, say this with me. Right where you're at in your home, say this with me. Say, Lord Jesus, right now, I come to you and I turn away from sin and I turn towards you. Jesus Christ, I believe you are Lord. You are God. And I believe you were raised from the dead, risen for me. I confess you as my God and I believe in my heart and you promised you'll save me. I turn away from my old life and I give you my life. Jesus, cleanse me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, I want to walk in newness of life. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for changing me. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, and amen. I'm so thankful for so many of you that just prayed that prayer. So many of you coming back to the Lord and so many of you praying that prayer for the first time. Listen. We wanna reach out to you. We wanna make a connection with you. We've got an easy way that you can just text Jesus is Lord to 555-888. If you'll just text Jesus is Lord to 555-888, one of our spiritual family, one of our leaders will reach out to you and give you some next steps and pray with you and help you on this journey with Jesus. Text that right now, would you? Jesus is Lord to 555-888. Oh, praise God.